Welcome to Roundhill Radio, the podcast from Roundhill Community Church. Through our conversations, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we're talking about when we talk about faith. Welcome to Roundhill Radio. I'm Leslie. I'm Ed. And welcome back to week two of our very special Bible study, Stories of Advent. So let's dive right in. Ed, what are, what are you teaching us about today? Well, let's find out. <laughs> it's going to be exciting. Um, so the texts that I have chosen for this Bible study, um, three of them are often used in the season of Advent. One, one is not, does not usually appear, and that's the one we took a look at last week. That was from the little letter of James in the New Testament. But this week, we're looking at the great prophet Isaiah. So he's one of the truly towering figures of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, and his voice is scattered all around the New Testament. So clearly, early Christian communities were very inspired by him. So I'll offer a brief prayer, and then we will get underway listening to the voice of the prophet Isaiah. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for your word and your words that you are still speaking to us through ancient texts for a contemporary day. Help us to open not only our ears, but our minds and imaginations so that we can also hear this word that you would speak to us as you once spoke through the prophets, and that we might embody that word with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to start off by reading the text that we have uh, under discussion this morning. It's only four verses long. It's from the 61st chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to have a little comment to make about Isaiah because there's not one Isaiah. There's not two of them. There's three of them. So we're going to say a little bit about which Isaiah this, this is. So chapter 61 The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. That's quite a story. So a little background, which may help to explain why this person says what he says. In the year 587, before Jesus was born, there was a terrible, terrible event that took place for the nation of Israel. Uh, The great superpower, one of the great superpowers at the time, known as Babylon, sent their armies into Israel and overwhelmed the nation, left some of the population in Israel, but apparently took off Uh, skimmed away, as it were, those who were, in some cases, the the leading citizens of the country. And they then deported them to Babylon, where they, most of them, of course, would have lived out the rest of their days in Babylon. So you can imagine, this was absolutely devastating. People lost their land, their language, their culture. They were forced to fit in uh, into an alien culture. It It was just an awful time. 
I was in 587. So as time unfolds, you know, one superpower often replaces another. So Persia, they were the rising star in the land and they overwhelmed Babylon. And they were led by a king whose name was Cyrus. And he had a very different approach from the Babylonians. He went to those uh, Jews who had been deported and he indicated to them, to them that they, he was going to allow them to return to their land, which must have seemed unbelievable. Now, you have to keep in mind that almost 50 years have passed when Cyrus comes onto the scene. So you're talking about a couple of generations removed from that initial awful event. Nevertheless, uh, he allowed them to return. He had even saved, or there was still in existence, the, the, some of the implements and the gold that had been associated with the temple mm. that had been taken off into exile. He allowed them to return that. So these people who never, ever thought they would ever go back home suddenly are going to get to go back home. Hmm. So first, so the book of the prophet Isaiah spans a big, long period of time. First, Isaiah really is addressed to the people who are in exile. Second, Isaiah comes along. Uh, so first, Isaiah is the first 40 chapters of the book. Second, Isaiah is roughly chapters 40 to 55. He's beginning to anticipate that they're going home. So you're getting this in stages. And then along comes third Isaiah. And he's chapters 55 through the end of the book, 65 or so. And uh, he's the one, of course, who has this phrase, the spirit of the Lord is, a, is of, of the Lord God is upon me. And he imagines these people going home. It's the descendants, really, of these, you know, th those who had been cast into exile. They're going home. So what do they find when they go home? It's a disaster. Mm -hmm. The temple's been destroyed, and it's been in ruins. It was never rebuilt. Uh, those who were left behind were never left in good circumstances. So power struggles had developed between them, competing groups, um, so much had been lost. And so if these people living in Babylon and then in Persia had this idea that, oh, if we could only go home to Jerusalem, you know, just to see the temple again, you know, surely they must have rebuilt it in all of these years. You know, things must look great. Can't wait to get back home. Uh-oh. Yeah. Then they arrive. Yeah. And uh, basically, they arrive to a Jerusalem that looks, in some ways, like New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. It's been devastated in a lot of ways. And even though it's been many, many, many years since uh, the Babylonians had been there, you know, things, whole neighborhoods were never restored. So along comes third Isaiah. And he says... The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then he goes through this long list of all the, he brings good news. And, uh, you know, we're going to liberate the prisoners. That is those who feel imprisoned living in this awful situation, this awful economy. And uh, he has this tremendous vision that the former devastations are going to be rebuilt. And he has a vision of a new day a new city, that Israel is going to rise again. So that's the background to this text. 
And I'm just going to stop there. I don't know if we have a question. <laughs> that's that's a long introduction. Good. But um, Leslie, I wanted to see if you had any questions about this. Yeah. So. Oh my gosh, so so much. <laughs> I um, we don't have any questions from our attendees yet. But I I have to say, when you first were reading it to me, I had this image in my mind of of a a dirty place, a place that's in mm. chaos, right? Mm -hmm. And this big broom sweeping oh, up great image. all the the mess and the dust and the filth and sort of setting things right mm. is what came to mind as you were reading us that text. Um, and then it was interesting to me that, you know, I, you know, they always say you, you can never truly go home, right? You can't mm. go back right. to that feeling you had as a child when you were home you know, it's assuming that's a positive experience for you. Um, but then what that feeling they must have had of, you know, that, that emotional devastation that their home was so far removed from their memories of it. But then this text, you know, Isaiah saying, it's all going to be made right again, mm. that relief and excitement they must have been feeling. Yes. Um, yeah. Sounds, I mean, really... A, a big contrast, you know, huge. Yeah. That's a wonderful image, Leslie, this idea of a, of a broom, you know, sweeping out the dusty corners and getting, getting all of that old rubble out of the way. So uh, one of the, one of the questions it looks like we have is similarities between that history and current day situation, which is a great question. I just want to give one more little piece of context before I say anything about that. Um, apparently there was significant tension between those who returned to Jerusalem after having been in Babylon and then in Persia, uh, and those who had been basically stuck there all these years. So the, there was significant bitterness on behalf of those who'd been left behind. I mean, not that it was the fault of those who'd been taken away, but I think their thought was, oh yeah, now you're coming home and you expect everything to be right. Mm -hmm. And it's not. And you expect to just kind of waltz in here and, um, you know, bring all of these changes and we're not ready for that. So it was interesting. They, they had a lot to negotiate. It wasn't just the, the physical devastation of this urban environment, but it was also the, the huge breach that had formed be between those who had been taken away and then the descendants of those who'd been forced to stay. Sure. I can definitely see in, in, so my husband's family are, are from Greece mm -hmm. and we were discussing one day the, the different experiences of those who came to America from Greece and then those that stayed during that period in the, uh, in the seventies. And, you know, for those that are here, I've, I've observed that they have a, you know, a great feeling of connection, nostalgia, Mm. Um, and positivity about their homeland, which I, of course I think is wonderful. And it, it, but like it is the, that, that country has continued to shape and evolve and change. And so when they go back, there's always that, I guess the word reckoning of, of the memory and expectation and the reality of it mm. um, is been really interesting, interesting to see as someone who, who hasn't experienced that myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Well, I think, you know, taking a look at, we've got actually a couple of questions. One is the similarity between 
that history in our current day situation? And also, how did people continue to sustain hope during this time? So the the sending off of the people of Israel into exile in 587 has often been described as their version of 9-11. So it was a devastating event that totally disrupted the nation's life in their case, unlike ours, but in their case, of course, it actually led to the physical exile of so many people. And the question of, of how to create hope in the while living in exile has always been right at the center of what it means to be Jewish, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Jews have often, from the very beginning, felt like they've always been in search of a promised land, you know, a sacred space where they could dwell securely. And yet so often the experience has been one of exile and torment. So first Isaiah, the answer to the question um, about how did they find hope? If you read through the first book of the prophet uh, Isaiah, so that's first Isaiah, you see one thing that's really hopeful and that is there's words of comfort. You know, comfort, oh, comfort ye my people, which has become the basis for such beautiful music, right? So this this scatters its way all the way through first Isaiah. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of blaming. The notion was that the reason, at least this is how Israel understood itself, that the reason they were sent off into exile is because they hadn't followed the ordinances and the statutes and the laws of God. That if they'd been faithful and believing and righteous, and all of those things, that this wouldn't have happened to them. I mean, this is not unlike what we do in our personal lives, you know? If I hadn't acted that way, I wouldn't be in this mess now, you know? (laughs) Right. It's kind of like a script that runs through. That's a very shorthand version of what Israel often felt about itself. And the prophets often blamed the people. However, they would counter that by saying, even though you didn't follow the script, God is going to continue to bring you home. God is going to continue to love you and care for you while you're in exile, and then one day bring you home. So you've got this tension that's there. Mm -hmm. So yes, they were able, they were given hope in terms of a future vision, but they also still had to wrestle with the sense that, yep, it's, it's us, you know, we, we messed up and now look at the terrible situation we're in. Mm -hmm. I I think the similarities between this uh, section and our current day situation, so I'll make it personal, and I think you alluded to this, Leslie, it's this notion of anytime anyone goes home after they've been gone for a long time. And maybe they left home in the first place because they wanted to, or maybe they left home because they had to. Then later in life, they come back home and suddenly discover that, wow, it looks a lot shabbier than I remembered it. And you know what happened to the store down there, and why is that church closed over there, and why does nobody seem to be doing anything about it? Hmm. This is a really common story, I think, and it's especially true in America today. I was watching a documentary about a man who had grown up in a small town in Mississippi, and now he had really fond memories of growing up there. They were he and his family were quite poor, but they had wonderful neighbors. They had a great church community. Then he left and he went off and did things. Maybe he felt like he had to leave for various reasons. But when he went back home, well, he saw boarded up stores. Uh, You know, the the neighborhood that he'd grown up in was had been devastated. There had been flooding. And uh, so he chose to stay and to try to be part of the force 
um, you know, a force for recreating all of those old neighborhoods. But just like, you know, some of those returning Israelites found, not everybody thanked him for pointing out you know, that the world didn't look as nice as, uh, as it had looked when he was a child. So I think that's a personal example of how this story plays out with us sometimes. On a bigger you know, framework, I, I think that there's a sense in which um, there's a feeling of loss these days, you know, that, uh, that again, infrastructure in our own country, not as strong as it once was, that there's there's a lot of urban devastation. Uh, there are still neighborhoods in New Orleans that have never been rebuilt. There are parts of Florida that experienced hurricanes 10, 15 years ago that have still not been rebuilt. So again, a sense that there are devastated and ruined places. And yet this text suggests that these are the places where God likes to work. And so I think that, uh, and then of course, here and there, we do find out like that man from Mississippi, right? Who went back home and said, I'm going to, uh, I feel that the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I'm going to go back and be an agent for, for, for good. Wonderful. All right, I'm going to step back again. <laughs> Great. We have another question. How does the text relate to Christmas? Oh, okay. So as we're <clears throat> thinking about Advent, um, I guess part of the way it relates to Christmas, you know, we think about Christmas as being a time of many rich traditions and beautiful music and uh, it, all sorts of things that enrich our lives. This text suggests that Christmas is actually what life feels like when the energy of God starts to come back into these devastated places. So it's not so much, it's not a day and it's not the traditions that we associate with it. It's more the experience of restoration and renewal. Mm -hmm. So what this prophet I think is feeling is that after so many years and years and years of waiting and watching, these are classic Advent themes, out of the blue, what happened? Cyrus of Persia came along, surprise, surprise, <laughs> and suddenly allowed all these people to go back home. So in a sense, their advent was that long period of waiting, right? Stretching over all those decades. And then they begin to go back home. Now we're starting to get into their experience of Christmas. The spirit of the Lord is, of God is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And really, I think whoever's writing this, we don't know who's writing. We don't know who this second, third Isaiah, you know, we don't have any identity or biography about them. But these were persons who felt like they wanted to reach out to very disheartened and discouraged people and say, good news is on the way. Help is on the way. What you're experiencing is not going to be this way forever. And uh, so I think that when what I would suggest is that it's relevance to Christmas is that if we think about the places in our personal lives that feel devastated or empty, if we take a look at places in our national life that also feel like they are in need of restoration, this text is saying that God wants to act in those ways uh, to help help renewal and restoration take place where that happens. And that experience of restoration and renewal, that's Christmas. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I can, I can also see a correlation in a more literal, literal sense of that, you know, as many people are planning um, and being perhaps frustrated by Thanksgiving celebrations where they can't yes. literally go home or they can't have their families together, that that hope of, you know, of being together one day and celebrating together and it being safe to do so. Um, and what that will feel like, yeah. you know. Right, right. Well, one of the things that I think is really, and this goes back to the question about Christmas, this text says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that word spirit in Hebrew is ruach. It can mean wind or breath or spirit. But I think we can relate to that whenever you feel this sort of inexplicable sense of energy or you feel like you've got a great idea, or suddenly you see a vision where there wasn't a vision and you think, I wanna get to work on this. Mm -hmm. That's what the prophet felt. And I think the whole point of keeping Advent as a time of waiting and watching, mm -hmm. it's sort of like thinking time. You know, you're not ready to act yet. You're mm -hmm. just giving, giving space to let things simmer for a bit. <laughs> then when that new idea bubbles up, that's Christmas. I love that. I can think of so many times where you and our pastor Dan Haug and I have sat in meetings together and we've done preparation and we've, we've, we've gathered our things. And then all of a sudden we're like talking on top of each other, or at least I am habitually interrupting both of you. And we're we can't, and the idea builds and builds and builds and builds. And we don't know where the inkling came from. And those exciting moments feel like this burst of energy and burst of like of of inspiration wind and spirit throughout the room i can i can relate to that perfectly yeah yeah well i think in the case of of this person whoever this person was this this sense of new breath coming into his life uh, was designed to translate into bringing some good news into other people's lives which has always been the mission of the church you know the church finds itself, wants to be at a place where it's able to offer good news. And one of the things that uh, Isaiah does is that he offers comfort. These are people who are mourning. And uh, I just, I, I, when I think of comfort, I, I always think of this story that I heard many years ago. This was told in a book by an, an Anglican bishop in London, and uh, there had been a, a woman that he had known who'd suffered. She was Jamaican. She was living in London, she and her husband, and she'd suffered this tragic loss. Her husband died in an accident. And um, so friends came around to comfort her <clears throat> and they didn't know what to do. She was sitting on her sofa, just like a stone. I mean, unable to absorb this terrible news. And then um, a friend of hers who was a nurse came into the apartment, saw what was happening, sat down beside this woman and pressed her cheek up against this other woman's cheek. And they just sat there until finally, this woman who was so devastated slowly began to weep. And the two of them stayed together. This nurse, according to this person who was writing the story, never spoke a word the entire time stayed and then at the right moment you know knowing the right moment as nurses often do stood up and walked outside the room but the healing had started 
You know, this woman had a long road of recovery in front of her, but there was, there was somebody there who knew that what she needed more than anything else was just comfort. And this is one of the huge themes in Isaiah. It's, this is a person who wants to reach out and, and in some ways embrace or put an arm around these individuals in Israel who have been so downtrodden for so many years. And I just love the, you know, he says to comfort all who mourn. That's a pretty big job description. Sounds like a pastor, you know, I'm going to comfort everybody to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who mourn in Zion. It's the sense that here's a person who's going to provide something that they need, a sense of presence, uh, a gift of food, the, a promise that I'm going to stay with you as we rebuild this country together. It's such a powerful promise there. And again, this is sort of related to Christmas in the sense that Christmas is this promise of new life in the form of a baby, the Christ child, coming into a world that seems devastated. If you think about Jews living, you know, in the first century when Jesus was born, they're living in a Roman occupied country. They're heavily taxed. They have constant food insecurity. And so what, what happens? A baby is born and that baby gives them hope. And then that baby grows up and gives them even more hope, right? As he goes from strength to strength. And uh, interestingly enough, Leslie, one of the reasons, and this is one of the reasons why I chose this story. When Jesus preaches his first sermon at his little hometown synagogue in Nazareth, this is his text. Really? It is. That's very cool. It is very cool. So <laughs> when you, especially when you think of the hundreds of texts that he could have chosen, he uses this one. And it's almost as if Jesus is wondering, I wonder what my job description is. And he finds it in Isaiah. And he clearly sees himself as someone who comforts, but also has someone who's going to bring about a, a transformation. One of the other reasons I love this story so much from Isaiah is that at the beginning, it's kind of all me, 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 me. And, and I don't mean that really, ne it sounds negative, but I don't mean <laughs> it that way. But it starts off with this person saying, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me to bring good news, to release the captives. This person has a pretty exalted sense of, of mission, okay? <laughs> this is what pastors call an over-functioning prophet, <laughs> Right. <laughs> Got way too much going on. You really into it. <laughs> but however, it's all it's all good stuff. But then in this text, there's a shift that takes place. And the shift is it's no more me, it's they. Mm. And so he's now pointing to the people who've been, you know, they've been surviving barely. And he says, they will be called oaks of righteousness. And they must have thought, excuse me? <laughs> I'm a what? <laughs> yeah. I don't feel like a broken twig, let alone an oak of righteousness. <laughs> but if you say so, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. So here are these people who feel they don't have a job description, right? This is, right. This is not lining up. Suddenly he's saying, you all are meant for greatness. You, you are really the light of the world. And he finishes it off by saying, they shall build up, they shall raise up, they shall repair. 
It's not the prophet is going to do that. They're going to do it. To which they also must have said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Yeah. We feel (laughs) ill-equipped. Well, I think, I think it's interesting too, if you'll allow me a nerdy moment that the (laughs) translation is for oaks, right? For the oak wood, which is one of the strongest, most dense hardwoods one can find that they're not just like flimsy, you know, there's no dogwoods. (laughs) They're not pine, right? They're not reeds. They're oaks. They're oaks. They're Isn't oaks. that the truth? I like and, that. And you know, this actually, this passage came to mind. I'm so glad you said that, Leslie, because uh, in the summer when we were worshiping outdoors, we have these northern red oaks that line the parking lot, right down the middle of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And every morning, Sunday morning, when we would gather for worship and you'd be on one side of that red oak and I'd be on the other or, or Pastor Dan, the um, they look so, like such powerful trees, you know, and they do have such a powerful presence. And, and I think that, you know, the sort of majesty of the Oak clearly goes all the way back to biblical times. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful connection that you've made. And I, I think that it also suggests something solid, stable, long lasting. And the, the note here is that they're going to be the planting of the Lord. You know, that in other words, their their life is kind of, it's tied to something God is doing in the world. They don't have to do that. God has, has initiated that, but then they are going to be the repairers of the breach. They're going to restore these urban, this urban devastation. I think this, and this going back to the earlier question about similarities between that history and the current day situation, I think this is a message we really need to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing for a leader to say, any leader, political, religious, otherwise, teachers, you know, this is the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's, you know, anointed me to bring good news to the poor. But sooner or later, the me has to become a they. And I think the message that's been sent here is that we are going to rebuild. You know, these people who didn't seem like they could figure out how to tie their own shoes are suddenly going to rebuild the city. They're going to be the architects, the planners, the developers, the contractors, all of it. It's such a magnificent act of trust. And I think Jesus picks up on that and carries that all the way through his ministry, which is why he relies on parables so often. People have to figure out these parables. They have to work it through their minds and then apply it to their lives. And so he's constantly empowering them. Maybe he gets this from Isaiah that, uh, you know, Isaiah had said, I mean, my goodness, almost 550 years before Jesus was born, this is how it's going to work. It also astonishes me, you know, when I think about us going back to the Constitution for inspiration, you know, that's several hundred years, but think, or, or back to the landing of the Mayflower, whatever it is. Yeah. But think about here, here's a situation of someone looking back 550 years for inspiration. That seems astonishing to me that those yeah. texts, just that those texts had survived all of that time. Yeah, that's even more than we're removed now from the time of Shakespeare and Elizabeth I. Exactly. Isn't that, I mean, it's, yeah. and, and yet here we are in Advent 2020, and we're considering how this text is meant for us. 
I, you know, the reading that I've done about this um, is that this is really a text that's empowering to think about how the Lord, the spirit is upon us. How is that? How is that happening for us right now? And Advent is encouraging us to open the space for that. There's so much on us right now. Mm-hmm. You know, people feel burdened and anxious. Um, but actually, this this text is saying, take that off, take a, that off and put on the spirit. And actually, there are a lot of clothing images in third Isaiah. I don't know whether he was, you know, a clothes person, someone who was fascinated by clothing, but there is quite a bit of referencing to taking off one garment and putting on a new one. Right. And so that, you know, and I think that when we're uh, feeling a little glum sometimes, you know, we say, I think I need a shirt that has a little pop to it. (laughs) So I I think clearly this prophet was thinking the same thing, you know, that you're going to, you're going to put away those ashes that, that, that are associated with mourning. And I'm going to give you a beautiful new garland, which is the word actually that he uses. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you this garland and you can, uh, you can feel better about yourself. I love that. Yeah. Uh, the what struck me was when you said a minute ago this idea of empowerment and that um you know that this text can bring, you know, that feeling of being an oak to people and that makes me think of how many voices we're hearing from these days that maybe we would not have been otherwise had not people mm. felt compelled to speak out and have their voices be heard. Great. Um, and voices that, that that we can, we can all learn from, I think. Yes. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And then it's, it's a bit, it's a story of transformation too, isn't it? You're talking about that, that idea of, of, of shedding one thing and taking on another. And it's, it's a really, um, it's a really comforting Mm-hmm. Text about mm-hmm. you know that when we're all feeling a little weighed down, that we can take off that burden and put on something that is more. Um, I want to say useful to the mm. world. Yeah. I can't think of a better word, but it's. Um, I think it's, there's so much in there, isn't there? I, I actually think your use of the word uh, usefulness is right, Leslie, because where the text winds up in the end. It's really about building up, raising up, and repairing. Mm. Those are jobs. You, know, you can immediately associate those with household jobs. Yeah, hand right? me my hammer. Where's my hammer? There you are, right? <laughs> the ultimate practitioner. And um, and I think that your comment also connects with one other question we have. You know, what what does it mean to live with the spirit as opposed to not living in the spirit? And I think what this text suggests is you'll know the sign of the spirit if it's leading you in the direction of restoration and renewal. Mm. I think a lot of times in, in our culture in particular, the, the spirit is associated with a kind of exuberance or energy, uh, physical energy, emotional energy. Uh, we say that someone has a lot of spirit, you know, they're a kind of vibrant person. That's one way to use it. And I don't discount it. I think that that can be part of a healthy life, but the, the, you know, when the spirit of the Lord is upon me, it can also be a kind of a sturdy, strong, persevering spirit moving in the general direction 
of the common good. That to me is always the sense of the Spirit's presence. And I think that's why Jesus uses that language. It's not something that's just my thing alone, my little spiritual, you know, not my spiritual effervescence. It's something that's energizing me to energize others. And I think that's the other sign of the Spirit. And Paul picks that up in his letters in the New Testament, where the Spirit is the thing that unifies the body so that it can become the body of Christ. So it's it's about healing and it's about community. Those two things go together. I think so. And that leads us perfectly into our last question for this yeah. morning. Okay. Uh, he says, Isaiah mentioned the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. What's the difference between living with the Spirit and not living with the Spirit? I actually like that phrase, you know, the living with. Um, I hadn't really, you know, I, I don't think that's a phrase that I've heard in relationship to the Spirit. So it's a, a kind of accompaniment. And I think living with the Spirit is having the sense that whenever the presence and the power and the passion of Jesus are in play, miracles are possible. And 2,600 years ago, living with the Spirit meant believing that something that looked utterly ruined could become the birthplace for something new. And so I think that's what it meant then. It's interesting that in his life, uh, Jesus on one occasion really emphasized how important it is to always maintain an openness to what the Spirit can do. That's living with the Spirit. That as long as that's in play, there are always there's always room for what Madeline Lengel liked to call the glorious impossibles. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if we lose that though, you know, and a lot of it has to do with faith as attitude and the assumptions we bring. But if we bring a, a you know, really a negative attitude, if we set up self-limiting beliefs, the spirit has a hard time working in that environment. So I think living with the spirit is living with that, with that sense of confidence and humility uh, that God is able to make extraordinary things happen in ruined places, especially in ruined places. Um, and that's not easy to maintain that hope in all cases. And I think that's why we need community to do it. Being in community helps us to live with the spirit. So it doesn't become an isolated thing that we have to constantly kind of renew ourselves. You know, it's something that we depend on one another to do. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for this thank time you, this Leslie. morning. I found this to be very, very energizing in that energy of, of positivity and hope. It feels really good. good. <laughs> I have to tell you on a Monday morning, uh, I, I love starting my week off with a Bible study. This is great. <laughs> it's uh, it's a good feeling. And it's really wonderful to have your questions, wonderful questions and great questions okay. from our participants. This has been uh, a really rich time. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you back here next Monday at 11 a.m. You will indeed. Thank you, Leslie. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Roundhill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Roundhill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.